So we continue in our series in 1 Peter. And last week, we covered uh, verses 13 to 21 of that passage. And uh, today, we're going to finish verses 22 through chapter 2, verse 3. Um, We began last week talking about how Peter is now moving in to give us instruction and exhortation on how to live as God's elect exiles uh, in the places he's put us. Uh, And it's interesting that before he gets to specific instructions on how to be God's exile at work, how to be God's exile in your marriage, how to be God's exile um, in relationship to those outside uh, of the church, he first deals with us as the church. And so uh, last week and this week, he's talking to us about what it means to be God's family. Um, And then next week, we'll look at what it means to be God's temple and priests. Uh, And really, most of his letter concentrates not on the individual you as an exile, but on the corporate we as exiles, because it's in the context of the corporate we as the church as exiles that we live out our callings as individual exiles. So uh, last week we, we saw that since we've been born again into God's family and we call on God as our Father, we have a new way of living in the world. And we saw that we live like we have a hopeful future, because we do. We live like our Holy Father, because He is holy and has called us to be holy. And we live with a healthy fear uh, that we would ever, that we would ever Uh, disparage or spurn the ransom of the precious blood of Jesus and turn back to an old way of living. And so today, we're going to look more specifically at the truth that we have a new way of loving in the world. And so let's pray. Father, um, we need your grace now. We need your spirit uh, to help Uh, unpack for us uh, what you were saying to your churches then when Peter originally sent this letter and what you are saying to this church today that lives on this mountain. Um, By your Spirit, come and do that and show us Jesus because, as he said, and we have proven his truth, apart from him, we can do nothing. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Several years ago, oh, probably more than a decade ago now, I uh, discovered that I have a great-great-grandfather who was a Methodist circuit preacher in Middle Tennessee in the Nashville area. His name was J.W. Cherry, Reverend J.W. Cherry. And uh, I did some research online and found that in the Tennessee public library that belongs to the state of Tennessee, there, were, uh, there was microfilm or microfish uh, copies of things that he had written. He had written articles for uh, Nashville newspapers. Um, he, at one time, was uh, the chaplain of the House of Representatives in Tennessee. And then he had a, a little Bible study he called the Inquirer's Club, uh, where some Some women asked him, would you lead us in a Bible study? And so there were notes 
it was it was an actual little club, and the the women in that club kept notes on his teachings, and I have all that on microfiche, and uh, it's kind of cool to learn about that that uh, I had that uh, in my history. Um, but one of the things that Reverend J.W. Cherry used to say that I found, uh, I think more than once in those materials, was this. Live on earth as you would expect to live in heaven. Learn to serve and love here as they are serving and loving in heaven. I'm going to read that again. Live on earth as you would expect to live in heaven. Learn to serve and love here as they are serving and loving in heaven. And I love that because I, I think that's what Peter has been telling us in this last part of chapter 1. That living with our hopes set on the grace that Jesus will give us on that day makes us people who give each other grace on this day and the next day and the day after that. In other words, trusting Jesus for my eternal life then includes trusting him with my earthly life now. The living with and for Jesus then and there begins here and now. And so again, I, I quote great-great-grandpa Cherry, live on earth as you would expect to live in heaven. Learn to serve and love here as they are serving and loving in heaven. And that's what the apostles taught their churches to do. And interestingly enough, there was evidence within a hundred or so years, there was evidence that that was starting to shape God's people, the church, in the places God put them. Um, there's a man by the name of Tertullian, who was a church scholar, who lived in North Africa uh, between 160 and 225 A.D., so, a hundred or so years after First Peter was written, this man, Tertullian, uh, lived. And we found some of his writings. And I want you to hear the way that he described uh, the way Christian believers lived in their world a hundred plus years after First Peter was written. It, it, actually, it's on the front of your bulletin if you'd like to look at it. He said this, but it is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand on, upon us, upon us Christians. See, they say, how they love one another. For they themselves are animated by mutual hatred. See, they say about us, how they are ready even to die for one another. For they themselves would sooner kill. Now, this is interesting. He's saying about the, the people in the world at the time, in the culture at that time, the world in which Christians lived as exiles, that they themselves are animated by mutual hatred. You would think that he had Twitter. They themselves would sooner kill one another. But Christians were different. Uh, the world would look at them and say, see how they love one another. See how they're ready even to die for one another. So only two or three generations after Peter's letter to the churches, they're already becoming the answer to Jesus' prayer, the prayer that he prayed the night before he was crucified 
in John 17. In John 17, Jesus asked his father to make his people a church that lives in the world, but not of the world, for the sake of the world. So it's a church that lives in the world, is engaged with the people in the world, but they're, they're not of the world. They're set apart and holy like their father. We talked about that last week. But they live for the sake of the world. Uh, they have a, a love for one another that points to Jesus. This is what Jesus prayed in John 17. He said, I do not ask for these only, the disciples, the 12 that he had, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. I ask that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, and that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. I love the way... uh, that uh, Dr. Larry Crabb has described what Jesus was praying for, and this is in your bulletin at the bottom of the sermon notes page. Listen to this. This is another description of what Jesus was asking the Father for. He says, God's consuming and passionate purpose is to reveal himself, to give himself to us as the one community of persons, the Trinity, the one community of persons we were created to most enjoy and also to resemble and reveal. The more traditional way of saying this is to say that God does everything he does for his own glory. And so, Dr. Hab says, as women and men, we glorify God by relating to others in this world in a manner that reveals something both staggering and stunning about the way God relates something far beyond anything we could be or even imagine on our own. That's what Jesus was praying for. That we would glorify God by relating to others in this world in a manner that reveals something both staggering and stunning about the way God relates. That's why Jesus was saying, as we are one, Father, may they be one, so that the world would believe and know that you sent me. So then we're to show God in his glory to the world by the way we relate to one another. And the pattern for that way of relating is nothing less than the way the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit relate to one another. Now think for a minute about what that might look like. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are continually submitting to and serving one another. If you read the way uh, the Trinity interacts with one another, you'll see they're continually submitting to and serving one another, honoring one another. They're on mission together. So everything they do, they do together. And they're giving themselves away to others together. As Crabb says, it's, it's, this is supernatural, holy relating. 
the way God relates within the Trinity is supernatural, holy relating. And it's staggering and stunning. But supernatural relating is going to require for us a supernatural renovation in our hearts. That's why Jesus prayed for it to happen. He knew this about us, so he asked his Father, would you please do this in these people and the people who are to come after them? Father, unless you do this, there's no way. You have to do this because there is no other way. And then that's what Peter tells us has happened. God did it. He said in the third verse of his letter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So something miraculous has to happen to make us the kind of people who will relate to one another the way the Trinity relates to one another. Something miraculous has to happen. God caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So one miracle, our being born again from spiritual death to spiritual life, was caused by another miracle. Jesus was resurrected from death to life. And then Peter says it again in our text this morning. Look at verse 22 with me. He says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. How? Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So something miraculous has to happen to make us the kind of people who will love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And so God causes us to be born again through the living and abiding word of God, the gospel, the good news that's preached to, that the apostles preached to us and we preach to each other. One miracle, our being born again from spiritual death to spiritual life was caused by another miracle. The good news that Jesus lived the life we could and would not live and died the death we should have died and was resurrected from the dead. So, if I'm going to, if we are going to relate with one another the way that the Trinity relates so that the world will see and believe that Jesus is who he says he is, how, how am I going to, how, how do I get born again? How, how do I get born again? Isn't it uh, something that parents decide? Children don't decide that they get born the first time. How do I get born again? Well, Peter's going to explain it to us. First of all, God causes it, he said in verse 3. God causes us to be born again, but he does it through the good news, the gospel, about the life, death, and resurrected life of Jesus. How does he do it through that good news? By your obedience to the truth. That's what we saw just now in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. So, what does the gospel have to do with obedience to the truth? This is where the other apostles help us. Listen to what James said in James 1.18. Speaking of the Father, he says, Of his own will, 
He brought us forth by the word of truth. That we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. So of His own will, will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. The Gospel. John, in John John chapter 1 says, But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in His name, He gave them the right to become children of God who were born, how? Not of blood and not of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but born of God. So there's something now that, okay, God brings us forth by the word of the gospel, the word of truth. We believe the gospel and receive the gospel and receive the Jesus that the gospel preaches to us, and God then gives us birth. Okay, let's, let's get Paul to help us. Paul says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him who they, in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And then Paul says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. They have not all obeyed the gospel. Well, here's that obeying something again. I think what, what I'm trying to show you is that when Peter says that we obey the truth, it's the same thing as Paul says when he says we obey the gospel. And we'll talk about how, how do you obey the gospel in just a minute. Paul goes on, for as Isaiah says, the Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The way you obey, obey the gospel, how do you obey an announcement of news? You believe it. That's what Paul's saying. Your, your faith receives the good news as good news, and you live according to it. So when Jesus came in Mark 1.15 and said... The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is here, repent, believe the good news. And then he said a few verses later, follow me. The way you obey the gospel, the way you obey the announcement about Jesus and what he's done and who he is, is you turn away from all the other stuff you were believing about what the world was about and your life was about, and you receive and trust this good news, this announcement that Jesus is the one who came to live the life you should have lived and to die the death you should have died and you're going to follow him. That's how you obey the truth. That's how you obey the gospel. And that's how then God, the seed of that word, that announcement, goes into your heart through faith and you're born. Now what happens if you do not obey the gospel? Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven one day with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So there is a consequence to not obeying the announcement that Jesus has come and what Jesus has done and his 
command to follow him. Paul says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. So my question for you this morning is, have you, have you obeyed the good news about Jesus by believing what you've heard and receiving Jesus as your only hope to be born again from death to life? Have you done that? You can do it today. Well, that leads me to another question. What if I think that I've done that, but I'm not entirely sure? How can I know that I've been born again? Well, Peter tells us, when we've been born again, the first sign is that we love our Father's family. The Apostle John said it this way in 1 John 3, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. So you can know that you've been born out of spiritual deadness into spiritual life if you love other believers in Jesus. And so the next question is, what does that love look like? Peter tells us. First of all, he tells us that uh, the kind of love that a born-again person uh, loves his brothers and sisters with um, the, that brotherly love uh, has a new purpose. He says, uh, having purified, this is verse 22, having purified your souls for a sincere brotherly love. That word purified is, is, is consecrated. You've set, your, you've set your soul apart for this purpose. Um, one of the commentaries I read as I study First Peter, which is excellent, is, by a lady named Karen Jobes. And this is what she said. I, I thought this was very helpful. She said, Christians are to love one another because by obeying the truth, by believing the gospel, by coming to faith in Jesus Christ, they have set themselves apart from the ways of the world and how they used to treat people. Now, for the purpose of relating to others as God intended human beings to relate. So you can know that you've been born again, or it's a sign that you've been born again, when your purpose for relating has shifted. And now your purpose for relating to other people is, is to relate the way God created you to relate, which we've already said is to relate the way the Trinity relates to one another. A sincere brotherly love. Well, what else does this love look like? Well, it has a new power. Peter says, love one, another, one, love one another earnestly. It's a fervent, persevering love. Um, that word is actually used to describe how an athlete uh, engages every muscle and every ounce of strength to engage its, for example, to cross the finish line. When I ran cross country when I was in 
junior high and high school, believe it or not, you're looking at the body of a long-distance runner. <laughs> or one that used to be. Anyway, when I ran cross-country, I would always sprint. I would give everything I had left when I saw the finish line. That's, that's what earnestly means. So this love that comes out of our new birth is this new, powerful, earnest, fervent, persevering love. How are we to love one another? Fervently and forever the way Jesus loves us. And how can we do this? You can't unless you've been born again with the imperishable seed of God's living and abiding word, the good news that Jesus loved us earnestly. Jesus engaged every ounce of who he was in loving us to the end. So that love has that new kind of earnest power, that fervent, persevering power. But it also has a, a new passion. Um, it comes from a pure heart, Peter says. This is a heart transformed by the good news of the gospel. It's transformed from a me-first heart, where all I do is use people for me. All my relationships are about me. Enough about me. What do you think of me? Um, but it's a heart that's been transformed to a you-first heart that, that looks out and says, no, you first instead of me. Um, when Peter says, love one another, that word, the word he uses for brotherly love is Philadelphia. It's brotherly love. But the word he uses when he says love one another is agape. It's a self-giving, sacrificial love. This is a new kind of love that you don't have unless you have the agape of God living inside of you. So what kind of love are we to have for one another? A selfless and sacrificial love, the kind of love that Jesus has loved us with. How do we do this? When you've been born again with the imperishable seed of God's living and abiding word, the good news that Jesus loved us from his pure heart, the purest heart there was, that's how you do it, because the seed of that imperishable love lives inside of you if you're born again. And then finally, this love uh, is without sibling rivalry. Verse 1 of chapter 2, Peter says, So, in other words, since all this is true about you born again kids in God's family, put away all the sibling rivalry. Put away the malice, which means you, that you have ill will for one another. Put away all the deceit. Put away the hypocrisy and wearing masks. Put away the envy and the slander. He gets very practical here. How, how can we love one another? We put away the malice. Put away the, the hatred and anger that is just so much a part of our culture and is seeping into the Christian culture. Take off the masks. There's, this is, there's no hypocrisy in the way we love one another. It's a sincere brotherly love. We, we don't envy. We look at what we, ha- what we have in Jesus, not at what our brothers and sisters have in their houses, their bank accounts, their garages, their cars. We love one another like Jesus loves us, even... While we were his enemies, he had compassion on us. And the only way we can do this is if 
the imperishable Word of God has planted the seed of that Jesus kind of love in us because Jesus loved us without sibling rivalry. If anyone had any reason to be mad at his, uh, his brothers and sisters, it was Jesus. And instead, he laid his life down for us. Well, a couple more thoughts before we finish. Um, pastor Scott Sauls, who is a, uh, another Presbyterian pastor in Nashville, uh, recently said this on a podcast. and He said that he tells his church this regularly. I hope there's something about our church that you don't really like. Strange thing for a pastor to say. I hope there's something about our church that you don't really like. Something or someone that rubs you the wrong way. Because it's going to be hard for you to grow here if there's not something or someone that causes you to pause and pray. It's going to be hard for you to grow here if the relationships you have in this church don't cause you to depend on Jesus. So I want to ask you, is your level of investment in the relationships in this church forcing you to depend on the love Jesus has shown you in order for you to love one another? Is your investment, is your level of investment in the relationships in this church forcing you to depend on the power of Jesus' Spirit within you? There ain't no easy button for this. But there is someone you can call on, your father, and there's a new power and passion you can count on now that you've been born again. And so finally, why does it matter that we live in holiness and that we love one another? Because Jesus said, as we saw, that the way we relate to one another will reveal God to our neighbors and the nations and the next generation. Jesus was born into this world, lived, died, and rose again so that we could relate to one another in this world in a manner that reveals something both staggering and stunning about the way God relates. And that's why I put Psalm 133 in the bulletin this morning and last week, but we didn't get to it. Psalm 133, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And then the psalmist reflects on how good and pleasant that really is. He's, oh, it's, it's like the precious oil on the beard of Aaron running down onto his collar. That doesn't make sense to me why that is pleasant and good. Well, to them, in that situation, it meant that God had anointed a priest who would mediate between sinners and a holy God. Uh, that he had set apart someone to be God's representative so that we could have relationship with him. Um, so the unity of God's people is holy. It, it smells like holiness. It sets us apart. But then he goes on to say, it's like the dew of Mount Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Uh, dew was a, is life-giving. It, it helps things grow. In fact, he goes on to end the psalm saying, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So when we live in unity and loving one another as Christ's church, the way the Trinity loves one another and serves one another, honors one another, 
goes on mission together, if we live like that, it will show that we are in the world but not of the world. But it will also show that we're here for the life of the world, for the sake of the world. But Peter knows that this new way of loving in the world will require us to grow up in real grace. It requires nourishment in the gospel of grace. And so he finishes with verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2. He says, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. How do you know the baby's alive? It's hungry. And mamas will tell you, this child has to eat so many times a day. You will grow up in living like your father and loving your brothers and sisters if you crave the milk of the gospel. This is what I mean. This longing for pure spiritual milk is a picture of faith, receiving and finding our strength in the gospel receiving and finding our strength in the good news about all the grace that God gives to us in Jesus. Uh, One of my favorite Puritans, Walter Marshall, once said this. He said, God has made you alive to live in God when you were by nature dead in trespasses and sins. You're born again. He has restored his image of holiness and righteousness in you, which you lost at the fall. He has freed you from evil slavery to Satan and your own lusts. And he's made you to walk by the Spirit. He is empowering you to bring forth the fruits of the Spirit. Here's the sentence. What God has done for you is what empowers you to be holy in your heart and life. What God has done for you is what empowers you to be holy in your heart and life. So that's why we need to continually come back to the gospel because what we do is always and only in response to and in reliance upon what Jesus has done. John said, we love because he first loved us. Paul lived this way. Paul, um, uh, Galatians 2.20, I love this verse. This is kind of Paul's life verse, I think. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, in this body, get this, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What Jesus has done and what it means that he loves me is what I need in order to grow up. I need to nurse on the love of Jesus as it's offered to me in the gospel. Walter Marshall goes on to say, true holiness only comes from gospel principles. Do you have them? He says, ask yourself, am I driven by love for God because God has loved me first? Am I driven by love for Christ because he has died for me? Am I motivated by the hope of eternal life as the free gift of God through Christ? Am I depending on God to Sanctify me by his spirit according to his promises. Friends, this is the kind of church God is calling us to be. We're a church family that continually comes back to the message about God's goodness in Jesus 
in the meal that gives us a taste of that goodness. Walter Marshall said, the preaching of the gospel and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper are a spiritual feast to nourish your faith. They strengthen you to walk in holiness as Christ lives and works in you. So friends, if we are to love one another earnestly from a pure heart without sibling rivalry, we're going to be, we need to nurse on the gospel. It's as graphic as that. Peter meant it to be that way. If you want to grow up as a Christian, you need to feed on Jesus. And so, before we come to this meal, I want to read you the message again in a very different way. Last Sunday after worship, Amelia Burgess came up to me. She stood patiently as I was talking to another adult. And when I finished that conversation, she got my attention. I knelt down. She gave me this little book that has unicorns and rainbows and hearts and stars on it. And she said, Pastor Jimmy, I wrote you a story. I wrote you a book. You wrote me a book? And so we sat and she read it to me. And uh, she also illustrated it. But here's the story. One day a house was on a hill, but one day a boy was born. His name was Jesus. He loves everyone. We love him too. So much, uh, she's saying, he loved us so much, he washed our sins away to save our life. So there's Jesus washing away sin. One day Jesus had to die on the cross to wash away our sins. And there's Jesus on the cross with the, the other two. Everybody, Jesus and everybody who loves him has frowns and all the bad guys with spears have smiles on their face. Then Jesus got put in a cave. Then he rose again. One day, two girls went to the cave. When they got there, God was not in the cave. God said, do not be afraid, for I am with you. Friends, if we're going to be God's exiles in the world, that's the message we have to hear again and again, that because of who Jesus is, is and what he did for us we don't have to be afraid god is with us father would you impress that story on us again and again help us to be a church that comes back to the message of the cross and comes back to the meal of the cross again and again and again we come we need your strength lord jesus thank you for the promise that in this meal, though you are not physically present, you are spiritually present with us now to strengthen us in grace so that we can grow up to look like you and live like you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.